Hey everyone, we are sharing a new podcast today and every day this week to celebrate our Zen Parenting Summit. Our free and virtual summit began on January 31st and ends on February 4th. And it's based around Kathy's new book, Zen Parenting, Caring for Ourselves and Our Children in an Unpredictable World. It comes out on February 1st. In addition to talking about Kathy's book, we have 15 thought leaders over five inspiring days, a great way for parents to start their year with confidence and optimism. Go to the show notes or zenparentingradio.com if you haven't already registered for the summit. Once again, it's free. And enjoy our daily podcast this week where we dive into each chapter of Kathy's new book. All you need to do is register with your first name, last name, and email address. So now on with the show. Here we go. My name's Todd. And this is Kathy. Welcome back to another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. Also day three of our Zen Parenting The Book. Yeah. Summit. Zen Parenting Summit. This part with Todd and I is about the book. Um, So I'm not quite sure what podcast number this is because we're recording all the way back in November, but this is uh, happening, you're listening to this probably in February. So um, we're going to talk about the third chapter of Kathy's book, with it, which is Chakra 3, mm-hmm. The Right to Act. But a quick overview, just in case anybody wants to tune in to either the first two days. The first one was Chakra 1, The Right to Be. Mm-hmm. And then the second one was Chakra 2, The Right to Feel. And now we're on Chakra 3, The Right to Act, Establishing Our Identity and Sense of Self. Mm-hmm. Where in the physical body does Chakra 3 find itself? So above your belly button, below your sternum. Yeah. Okay. I call so that like, the gut. Yeah. Like, you know, some people say stomach, but you know, if you want me to give the very literal. So it we often refer to it as the solar plexus. And uh, as I have been reading, oh no, as I've been reading through your book, mm-hmm. um, I have realized that you start it with a quote, which I'm about to share. Uh-huh. And then you basically just break them up into sections as most books are written. You just realizing that, babe? Yes. Okay. And um, so the sections for chakra three is autonomy and the hero's journey, Mm -hmm. individuation, Mm -hmm. Mm self-care, energy, and the true and false self. Yes. I don't know if we're going to cover all five of those. Okay. Because we want to make this about 30 minutes or thereabouts. But let's start with the quote. There is a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And there's only one of you in all time. This expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and be lost. Yeah. Who wrote that? Do you remember? Uh, That's Martha Graham. Who's Martha Graham? She is a teacher and dancer, a teacher of dance. Um, And the reason that I love that quote, and and it has, you know, it has a life of its own, like that quote, you'll see it a lot of places. Um, but it's she's speaking to the fact that we all come into the world in you know we're all unique like it's it's hard because i used to talk about um snowflake 
Like we all come in as a snowflake, but that has taken on a negative connotation. Yes. Um, and so, but the analogy of the snowflake, um, you know, I'll try to explain it instead of just use the word is that there's a lot of snowflakes coming in, you know, you know, there's a snowstorm, there's a lot of snowflakes, but every snowflake, if you look at it under a microscope has a different composition. So it looks different and has a different pattern. It, it's, you know, how big it is, how small it is. So every single one is unique, right? Do you know that? Yeah. That, okay. Like they taught us that in kindergarten. Yeah. So, um, so the reason I'm saying that it's, it's what Martha Graham is saying about each of us too, is that, so a lot of people say, well, there's already a lot of books out there or there's a lot of dancers or a lot of singers. So why do I do it? Why would I do it? It's because your take on it and who you are and your life experience and the composition of you has not been viewed yet through dance. Your take on things has not been viewed yet through a book. Your whatever has not been viewed yet through parenting or, or whatever. So it, it doesn't matter that something has been done or that other people have done it first because your take on it is unique, essentially unique. Um, I did notice in chapter three, mm -hmm. you talk about individuality towards universality. And one thing that I learned from rereading chapter three this morning is that the first three chakras focus on the self mm -hmm. and then the last four move towards universality. Correct. Anything you want to say about that before I ask you my first question? Well, you and I happened to tape a podcast earlier this morning that came out in November. So, uh, you know, months ago, but it was, about, and what number was it? Just since I'm going to refer to it. 625. 625. So it came out a few months ago. And we talked about <clears throat> that, like, um, ask me the question again so I can bring it back. Um, individuality towards universality. Okay. Yeah. The, the first three chakras in connection to the, to the last four, or the top four, is that you have to have a sense of self, foundation, connection, um, understanding of your own desires, needs. So let me just start from the ground up. Like, you know, chakra one is about foundation and about having a basis of understanding your existence and your sense of belonging. Chakra two is about your emotions, pleasure, creativity. And so you're kind of getting into who you are and why you want what you want. Chakra three, where we are today, is we're talking about who you are as a person, your sense of self. This is who you are. And those pieces then create what you put out in the world, which is then chakra four, which is your heart, chakra five, which is what you speak, chakra six, which is how you see, um, meaning imaginatively and intuitively, and then chakra seven, which is your connection to community and, and the outside world and everything else. So you have to know who you are before you can like offer yourself. Like it's, it's very simple in, in concept, but not easy. Um, so uh, section one is autonomy and the hero's journey, mm -hmm. which seems, um, interesting to put those two ideas together. Mm -hmm. So I want to start with a quote that you say. There's a few quotes I highlighted that I think are outstanding. Oh, thank you. And the first one I want to start with, well, let's, let's go with this first, the hero's journey, mm -hmm. um, departure, initiation, and return. Mm -hmm. That's what it is in its most basic form. Mm -hmm. Do you want to uh, explain any cultural literacy of what the hero's journey might be? So it was um, discussed, written about by Joseph Campbell, who is a uh, mythologist, um, academic and mythologist. And he talks about that all stories 
um, all experiences are based in this heroic, you know, the hero's journey. Um, as you may all know this already, but Joseph Campbell's book, The Man with 10,000 Faces, is that what it was called, Todd? Give or take. It's something to that effect. 9,000, 11,000. 10,000, 15, who knows? 220, but 221. It was the book that George Lucas read that then inspired him to write Star Wars or to create the characters that he did in Star Wars. Um, and basically what he, what uh, Joseph Campbell says is basically every story, every mythological story, every story in literature is based on this hero's journey. This is what Dorothy does in The Wizard of Oz. This is the story of the alchemist that, you know, uh, Paulo Coelho writes about. This is the story of... Um, is it Lord of the Rings? Is Lord of the Rings? I don't know Lord of the Rings very well. I don't know it that well either, but I'm sure it is. The Hobbit, for sure. Um, and then the Lion King. Like, it's it's the in Star Wars, of course. It's this, somebody starts to understand who they are, and at first they fight it. They don't want to know what they have to do because it's hard. And then they have to search, go out there and deal with whatever they have to deal with, if it be Darth Vader or anything else. And then they come back to their community and share what they know. Um, and community means different things now than it meant then. You know what I mean? Where it used to be our own towns or our own states. Now we're more globally connected. Um, but why autonomy is connected to that, Todd, if that was going to be your next question, mm -hmm. is that the experience of, you know, understanding your own autonomy, which is like to be autonomous is to be within yourself, like to be separate from others and understand you are a freestanding human with your own um, sense of self, you know, your own desires, your own gifts, your own talents, your own needs, and that you have to become autonomous to like experience the hero's journey. Because if you don't become autonomous and you're just connect, like you stay connected to your family and you do what your family tells you to do and you take the job your family tells you to take or your society tells you to take, it doesn't always have to be family, but you don't individuate, you don't experience that autonomy. How do you go on a hero's journey? You can't do it, right? There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place. And that's your favorite movie, right? Yes. All right. For sure. Just wanted to give Dorothy some kudos. Absolutely. I mean, it was her hero's journey. Like, actually, Joseph Campbell is quoted as saying that he thinks this is a man's journey, um, that he believe again, he was from a different time, different era. I'm not going to throw him completely under the bus, but obviously it's How about a, a little under the bus? A little under the bus. It's a bit misogynist to think, um, misogynistic to think that only men go through this experience. But historically, like the story of Moses and Jesus and Buddha, they were all hero journeys. And so we, they were very in the masculine. I saw the Wizard. The Wizard of Oz came out in what 1938, and it's been a part of everybody's life since then. And that is a girl. She is a girl. She is not a woman yet, going through her own experience of you know her own self development and separating from her family and figuring out who she is, and then coming back. There's no place like home, right? It doesn't mean that separating from your family doesn't mean that you disregard your family. It means that you recognize that we come into this world as individual people, that we're not supposed to. You can be connected to your family 
even work for your family or whatever it may be, but you are your own being. And I think a lot of people, a lot of kids and a lot of parents have difficulty understanding this, that you're not supposed to raise your kid to be like you. You're supposed to raise your kid to be like them. Exactly my next quote from your book. Many parents struggle reconciling their own dreams with their children's autonomy. Mm -hmm. But eventually this process is necessary for an individual to align with themselves and their life purpose. Everything that you've been saying up to this point. And I just wonder if you want to say more about how we tend to, as parents, um, I don't, I want to say oppress or, or put on our dreams that Mm -hmm. we never met onto our kids. Well, I would say that that, what you just described is probably the most common reason that, um, a family will seek treatment, at least in my experience, um, you know, like a disconnection in the family or communication breakdown in a family where the family wants help to reconnect. And oftentimes, it can be based in things that are more traumatic and more extreme situations. But a lot of the time, it's things like, I want my child to do this and be this, and they're not meeting their full potential, and they should stay in soccer because that's how they're going to get their scholarship. And when I was in high school, I was in a sport, and so that's what they need to do to stay out of trouble. And so, and then I want them to go to choir in the morning because that's how they're going to get their art. And I'm going to, and so the parent has like created this story or they're reliving their story and placing it on their child and their child doesn't have any space to figure out who they are and what they want. So there's a lot, and the parent will say, but this is what kids need to do. And this is the expectation, or this is what was done with me. Like, I don't, I have yet to meet a parent who is attempting to be harmful to their child. Like all parents are doing it in the name of love and concern and desire for their child to be healthy. But what they're missing is that there is not one way for their child to be there. They have to give them space to figure out who they are. Well, and for some reason I'm thinking of when your baby's born, they're basically this meatloaf that mm-hmm. just kind of lays around totally. and poops and does mm-hmm. it all. So I, I think of them as like this pile of clay and mm-hmm. it's our job to mold this clay. But I feel like there, I need like a different metaphor because the idea of molding clay means that it's with our hands and there's like, I want the clay to have its own aliveness, its own energy. And we have to like move away from the clay metaphor, but we also need to create space for this clay to be whatever it wants to be. Well, exactly. Because you're not molding clay. They don't come out as clay. They come out as meatloafs where they need things. And initially they need all of our attention. It's what makes us kind of a very unique type of mammal because most mammals, yeah, they need their moms initially, but they separate from their moms pretty quickly. Whereas in our, as a human being, we need our parents like significantly for the first many years, really our whole lives, because human beings are all about connection. But what I will say is that we are not clay, that think about it this way, when we were in utero, when we were developing in a, you know, in utero, was someone molding us? Mm -hmm. Or we were just becoming, you know, we were like, you know, the heartbeat, and then we, you know, then the arms and the legs, I don't even remember the whole thing. I used to know these things you know, having, I've been pregnant five times. I have three children and I have, I used to know exactly what was going to happen at each month. Well, and what this reminds me of is we saw Wayne Dyer and he had this whole story about, you know, when you're in utero, the kid's not worrying about if his nose or her nose is going to grow or the elbow is going to connect the arm to the upper arm. 
But then the minute that they show up in this world... Then we take over. We like, oh, we'll take it from here. Right. And I think that's kind of why we want to get away from the clay. And by the way, just to be clear, I had two miscarriages, just to make sure that was understood, um, that we want to get away from the idea that we're molding clay mm-hmm. that we because we aren't what we're doing is we are supporting a human being in thriving like first by feeding and allowing them to sleep and making sure they're not in harm's way and making sure that they're comforted because they thrive through that connection and through that kind of love of making sure they're getting what they need as kids get older the way we love becomes standing back just a little more so they can start to express who they are. And this begins when, you know, very early on, like when they're two and they're like, I do it myself. And, um, you know, they want to wear a certain thing or they love a certain hat or... Sweetie, you're getting to individuation, which I haven't quite gotten to yet. Sorry. Before we leave Autonomy and the Uh Hero's Journey, you bring up a few stories uh, about your own version of a hero's journey. And you talk about um, your middle school experience that you made a bunch of choices leading in the wrong, the wrong direction. So you changed how you spoke and acted. You went a whole year without swearing. And then it was a, just one year, everybody. I, I yeah, brought it back since online. then it's, it's back. <laughs> and then in adulthood, you wrote identity loss, depression, anxiety, miscarriages, uh, mother who's struggling with, um, my mom has dementia, dementia, mm-hmm. dad who, who passed away a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So these are, your versions of your dark nights of the soul. Mm-hmm. And um, you say choices are based of fear, speak up for your knee. Okay, so that's something else. So basically those are all heroes. Yeah. Like when I say they're all heroes journey, I don't mean that every single one of them had the same depth or the same importance. Um, I kind of think about them as being like mini journeys. And sometimes we have a grand one. Like I did have a grand journey of changing um, uh, many aspects of my life. Like I, that, but it had a bunch of different legs to it, like where then other things would come up. And so some of us, there is no one journey. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like a lot of times, like Luke Skywalker, for example, let's use him, Todd, because it's your favorite movie. So Luke Skywalker, his initial journey was I need to leave Tatooine. I need to go, you know, deal with, I need to figure out who I'm going to be and what I'm going to do. But initially he's like, he runs into, you know, Ben Kenobi and he's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to. Then he goes home and guess what? His aunt and uncle are burned up in a fire. Who set that fire? Take these two over to the garage, will you? I want them cleaned up for dinner. But I was going into Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. You can waste time with your friends when your chores are done. Oh. Uncle Owen. Uncle Owen. So Buzzkill. He gets home and realizes he doesn't have a choice now. Yeah. Like he w- he was did not he didn't want to do it. He's like, "No, I don't I don't want to hang out with Ben Kenobi. Um I'm just going to stay home, be a farmer, be like race my whatever. I don't know what he did." His land speeder? He wanted to go pick up some power converters. Yeah, he did. So then he's like, I have to do this. And then that was the beginning of the journey. And then he had to save Princess Leia and then, you know, all this. But then we had the Empire Strikes Back and he had another journey. Mm-hmm. He had to face his dad. And then the Return of the Jedi, he had to face another. So, Spoiler alert, Darth Vader's Luke's dad. Ooh, um, it's his father. So my point is, is we don't go through life and say, whew, I got through that uh, that one journey. So now I'm good. Like it's it goes on and on and part on. of the human experience. It is. It's just if part you're of, doing it right. Um, it's part of the human experience, no matter what. Yeah. 
I, I don't know if there's right and wrong. So individuation, individuation, you use the phrase, I do it myself. Do it myself. Who is, who is known for that statement? My nephew, Max, who I call Butch, um, mm. he just always wanted to do things himself. So and was, I know every kid says that. I have three kids myself, but there was something about his determination that was a little different. Um, and he was, what, two years old when he said that? Do now it myself. He's, now he's a 21-year-old man. Mm-hmm. 22. Um, individuation can feel like rebellion, Mm -hmm. curiosity. Uh, okay. So first let's talk about that. How can us parents misinterpret individuation? So let's say that, um, you're a Sox fan, right, Todd? So we have three daughters and, um, one of our daughters comes home and says, you know what? I think I'm a Cubs fan or I'm a Brewers fan or I'm a, you know, <laughs> Whatever. It means they're sleeping in the garage. Well, and that's, I'm using something very tame, but that's what a lot of families think is they'll be like, who are you? You're and this not family, my kid. we are Sox blank. Exactly. And, and like I said, this is a tame example because it could be a political affiliation. It could be, um, you know, your music taste. It could be, um, that you don't want to go into the family business. Like you're not interested in selling furniture. You're interested in, you know, being a clinician or something. And you come home and you say this and the family feels offended and disrespected. And there's a lot of, I didn't raise you this way. Who are you? When really that's the whole purpose of raising children is we don't tell them who to be. We support them in becoming who they are. These statements I'm saying can sound really cliche, and it's unfortunate because there's really a lot of depth in it. Because I think a lot of times as parents, we do have the I'm molding clay idea in our minds. And so when our children think differently than us, we take it as an affront. You know who is good at uh, allowing their kid to be individual, sweetie? You're going to play Family Ties. I knew it. No, you didn't. I did too. No. You always talk about Elise Keaton. Alex P. Keaton. But also the mom is Elise. Yes, it is. But I'm not talking about her. What's the dad's name? Uh, Steve. Steve and Elise. Yes, Steve. Um, I had to sing for a second. He was, uh, you What know. about when they made Andy grow up? <laughs> Let's not talk about Andy. Um, Steve and Elise were, you know, they worked for the public radio. Mm-hmm. She was an architect. And he worked for NPR. And, um, or something to and that. And Alex point. was a Ronald Reagan loving Republican. So that's one example of loving parents letting their kid be who they wanted to be. And, you know, this is an interesting example that you just gave because I agree it's a perfect example, but I do also understand parents being concerned about their children choosing things that might be inherently damaging. Like we have had, like I have had, unfortunately, I've talked with parents who their child is demonstrating a lot of um, like white supremacy or harming others or choosing a philosophy in life that is very different than the parents, but it's actually harmful overall. And in that kind of situation, that that's not what I'm talking about. That can be something where you need to help your kid understand how it can be harmful. Okay. I'm just going to put that out there because that is a thing that's happening right now. What I'm talking about is a little more like focused on your kid wants to have a different career. They want to do something different in high school. They want their interests are different than yours. Their music tastes are different than yours. They want a haircut that's different than yours. And the belief that you're supposed to control those things or that you should have an absolute say in that, that's what I'm asking you to question is what if they, what if we understood that our role in their life was to 
take a step back and allow them to become who they are. What about this quote from your book, sweetie? An inability to allow our children this time for discovery may have roots in our powerlessness Mm -hmm. as children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anything more you want to say about that? if you grew up in a family where your family told you who to be and how to think and what to do, and you've never questioned that, then you're going to continue that cycle. I mean, it's just that basic. You're going to say... I never questioned my parents, so you shouldn't question me. You know, nobody talked to me about sex, so I'm not going to talk to you. Um, In this family, a very, like, lighthearted one is I grew up um, where my dad, who was way into cars, was like, you need to get a white car. That's what we do. They White cars are the way to go. And he had all these reasons why, like all these statistics and data. So I would always get white cars. And then when Todd and I got married, he's like, I don't want a white car. <laughs> and I was like, well, but that's what we do. And, and I had to really question, like, I know, it made him bored. Um, I had to be like, how important is this? And how much of this is just the, it doesn't mean that my dad was inherently wrong. It means that I can choose something different safely and not feel like I'm disparaging or disregarding my family. Like it's okay to choose for yourself. Yeah. So how, how good are we as parents at allowing our kids to make their own choices? Yeah. And it's hard because you even talk about, you know, obviously these are safety things, but even to this day, you hold your teenage girl's hand while crossing the street. <laughs> I do. I grab their hand and they're like, um, yeah, right. I'm 17. And backseat back driving, you also own yes. that you do a little bit of that. Bad, bad, bad. But those are kind of easier examples because there is a safety factor in there. Not that, not that we should be holding our 14-year-old daughters when they cross the street, but with underneath it is, I don't want you to get hit by this car. But I think what a lot of us parents do is try our best to um, say this is the way to do it when it has nothing to do with safety. Well, and it either, and I'm going to talk about two extremes. We either say this is the way to do it because this is how I do it and I came out safely and successfully. And I'm putting that in air quotes because in your perception or in what you believe those words to mean, Or we go the other way. We said, I had a hard time, so you can't do any of these things, and I'm going to have you do all these other things. Like the example that I used to give a lot on this show, because we've been doing this show for 10 years, is when um, parents would come to me and say, my daughter, who's four years old, is so shy, and I was shy, and I don't want them to be shy, so I'm going to push them to do this. I'm going to make them do this. And while I understand what they're doing, which is I don't want them to have difficulty the way I did... You also need to allow to like try and micromanage everything about them so they don't have the exact same experience you do or did. They're obviously not going to because they're not you. They're going to have their own experience and you can share your own experience with being shy. You can offer them opportunities to speak up, you know, things that, but you don't have to force it and you don't have to do it with fear because their shyness or what you perceive to be shyness could be a really important part of their personality where they tend to be more of an introspective um, and not in, I'm going to use introvert, but introvert does not equal shy. I'm, I'm more of an introvert and I don't feel myself to be shy at all. Um, but, and, and it's also even funny to say that cause I just got a flash in my mind that when I was little, my mom said I was so shy and she would always say that you were so shy and you were always hiding behind my skirt and you were always so shy. And then my mom used to sew clothes for a living or not for a living, but for fun, like it was like a hobby, go to Joanne Fabrics, get a thing and like sew clothes for my sister and I. And so we would, so one time she sewed clothes for us and we happened to be in this like random fashion show. It was like for not a lot of people. So don't get too excited. But she said that I walked out on the stage and I was as happy as could be. Mm. 
And I just, she's like, how is my shy kid doing this? And she had made some assumptions about me that weren't true, which was that I didn't want to do all the things where I think as a kid, I just felt a lot of people's emotions. And I was trying to get support in that I didn't want to deal with adult feelings. I didn't want to deal with other people's feelings. And it was different. So we all, we all, we also sometimes label things incorrectly. So anyway. Um, before we move on from individuation, um, you talk a little bit about when our kids are having a really, really difficult time. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened one of our kids was having a really difficult time yesterday with something that went on in her life. Mm-hmm. And this is a quote. It says, instead of thinking we should or can feel for them, we can sit in the dark with them and trust that they have the capacity to manage what's happening. So hard. I judge that this is probably one of the most challenging parts about being a parent mm-hmm. is seeing our kid in pain. It's almost easier when they're in pain when they're toddlers or adolescents, but the older they get, the har- I don't know, maybe maybe I'm just like, yeah, they skin their knee, I can sit with them, plus I can do something about it. I can put a Band-Aid on it, I can give it a kiss. But as our kids get older, the tools in our toolbox become more and more sparse mm-hmm. and their problems become more and more grown up. Yeah, And our ability to sit in the darkness with them instead of turning the light on or fixing their problems or try to convince them out of their feelings. Or like using toxic positivity, like you're fine, you're yeah. great, you're okay. So yeah. yeah, I just wonder if there's anything more you want to share about that because I think it's something that's really important. Well, I think I just you know reiterate everything you said that I think it's one of the hardest parts of being a parent. And I, I would say that I think this can also be true when our kids are very little. Like, I don't think it has to be just the teenage years. Like you said, if a kid falls down and scrapes their knee and they cry, we know what to do. But sometimes a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a five-year-old cries because they're scared of people or they don't want to go in school or they don't want to do a dance class or they don't want you to leave. And that can be hard to understand too. Like where we are like trying to be rational and trying to be like, you should be not having this experience or you should feel better about this when really sometimes we just have to sit with it and allow it to be because it's happening. Like they are afraid that you're leaving and you can say, but you shouldn't be, but they are. So it's like, how do we not disregard their feelings and also be present and pay attention to what they're telling us? But I do agree with you that in the teenage years, why it's hard is because it's more real and human and complicated and there's other layered. Yeah. I mean, yeah. All those things you said. Um, so we want to keep this at about a half hour. We're at a half hour. So jump in, um, jump ahead. Self care. Uh, you talk a little bit about invisible labor. We're not going to talk about it here, but I want to give you two podcasts that we've done. One is called real time emotional labor. That's podcast number 440. And then, Podcast number 495 is called Women Aren't Nags, We're Fed Up. So if you want to know more about what invisible labor is, um, those are two really good resources for you. Um, And then lastly, you talk about, excuse me, the true and the false self. And energy is in this chapter too. Energy, right. So I'll just do a quick synopsis um, of like energy. What I'm talking about as far as being ourself and who we are is that we have to remember that we bring our own energy into every situation. And a lot of times when we're arguing with our kids, we talk about how mad our kids are, how it's, you know, we kind of blame our kids for every conversation breakdown or, you know, they're not respecting me or they're not listening to us, but we are half of that conversation. And it doesn't mean that then we blame ourselves. It means that we recognize 
whatever energy we're bringing into that conversation is how they are going to respond to us. So if we have already been sitting, stewing at home, angry with our children because of something they did, said, a grade, and then they walk in the door and we come out like just ready to be angry, then that's the way they're going to respond. Mm -hmm. And so and it happens sometimes like it's it's not it, it's something that we can apologize for and correct and move forward and do better but if we can actually have an understanding of in this situation if i can remain calm then this relate this conversation can remain calm um we tend to there's you know reciprocity we tend to respond the same way someone is responding to us so if we tone it down if we're calmer our children respond calmer so that's the energy um, that's a piece of it. It's a much longer chapter than that. But true and false self is just the D.W. Winnicott, you know, research around that there is, um, we come in with a sense of who we are. It's our true self. It's like as a baby, when we're hungry, we cry. We don't question and say, is it time for dinner? We just cry because we're hungry. Or when we're one years old or two years old and we want something, we want it. We don't look around to say, does anybody else want it? We just want it. And it's our true inherent self. It's we are acting from what we need, what we want. And as we grow, as everybody knows, we we start to realize that there is you know, societal demands, we get more attention or love if we maybe are more patient. We have, you know, sometimes um, when we're babies, we cry and no one responds to us. You know, there is maybe a parent who is unavailable for, a, you know, many number of reasons. And the child or the baby learns that I, what I'm doing is not getting my needs met. So I'm either going to shut down these parts of myself or I'm going to become different. And that is what we call our false self. I want to be clear that um, the false self isn't always inherently bad. And actually, what was the Jason Gaddis thing? Strategic self. Strategic self. When we had Jason Gaddis on the show who wrote um, back, what is it called? Getting to Zero. Getting to Zero. I was going to call it Back to Zero. He wrote Getting to Zero about relationships. And he he used the same model, but he called it our true self and our strategic self. And I really like that language. It's not what D.W. Winnicott used, but our false self or our strategic self is just the way we figure out how to go through the world. So it's like we know that if we say this or do this, it's not going to work. So we figure out a new way. I'll give you a really basic idea. I leave the house and I'm very sad, okay? And I'm bumming and I'm just having a hard time. But then when someone walks by me, I go, hey, good morning. Good to see you. That's my strategic self saying, bring it up. You can do this. It's not me saying I'm going to like cry and have a sad face to everybody I see. I, I figure out how to move through the world in a way that is appropriate to society. The problem is when our false self takes completely over and we don't even know what our true self is anymore. And that in itself is a whole journey. And again, that's our, this whole chakra, our sense of being, a lot of it is getting back to our true self, not only our true self, but integrating it into our more strategic self because we are important in the world, but we are also a piece of the community. We are a part of the community and life isn't all about just our needs. Mm -hmm. And so we have to figure out how to negotiate that. So that's what that chapter is Yeah, you got to dance in between yeah. your world mm -hmm. and, and the your greater brain world. and mm -hmm. the world around us. So mm -hmm. Um, all right, so that's a quick summary. We just touched some main points, mm -hmm. but um, invite you all to uh, read that chapter and get mm -hmm. a lot more out of uh, this than just what Kathy and I just shared. So yeah, and for um, those of you that are part of the summit, you may already have bought the book, which I hope you have, um, because 
by this day in the summit, it is out. Yeah. Um, so hopefully you've taken a look at it. For those of you who don't have the book yet, this all these things we've talked about today and on the previous days and a few days after this are much deep, more deeply gone into in the book. So if it just touched on things and it didn't quite clarify, you probably want to read. Um, we'll see you tomorrow. Ch- chakra four, the right to love and be loved, loving ourselves and others. So we'll catch you tomorrow. Have a good one. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have appreciated or enjoyed a decade of Zen Parenting Radio podcasts, please tell a friend or leave a five-star review. We are grateful for your support. Remember to register for our Zen Parenting Virtual Summit, where you will learn from 15 thought leaders and learn more about Kathy's book, Zen Parenting, Caring for Ourselves and Our Children in an Unpredictable World. If you want more Zen Parenting, consider joining Team Zen, pre-ordering my new book, or subscribing to Zen Parenting Moment. You can find these opportunities and more at zenparentingradio.com resources. It's our new page where you can find everything we do in one place. If you want to connect through social networking, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Keep trucking, and we'll talk to you again next week.